the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Congress summons the presidents of our elite institutions for their weak and spineless response to raw Jew hatred on their campuses, including the president of my alma mater, Claudine Gay of Harvard. Is that speech according to the code of conduct or not? We embrace a commitment to free expression. We're going to take a closer look. Do you realize you just heard the president of Harvard say that if these pro-Palestinian demonstrators actually killed Jews, well, then we would take action. And the, quote, international community gathers in Abu Dhabi to solve the climate crisis yet again. The gathering includes some all too familiar faces, like John Kerry. We need to accelerate the pace of emission reductions. Bjorn Lomborg responds. What they are totally not telling you is the costs are going to be phenomenal. All this and more. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Great to be with you. Catch my program each weekday morning live, 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. And please follow me on Twitter at Hugh Hewitt. Follow this program as well at Town Hall Review. We'll begin in Washington, D.C. and the House Education Committee, where the presidents of some of our nation's most prestigious universities, Penn, MIT, Harvard, all lined up to answer questions about the vile anti-Semitic, often genocidal rhetoric we've seen and heard on their campuses in recent weeks. Appearing before the committee were Claudine Gay of Harvard, Elizabeth McGill of the University of Pennsylvania, and Sally Kornbluth of MIT. If they had a competition to figure out who came in last, it would be close, but I think it was President Gay. I take a closer look at the disturbing testimony on my program. You know who isn't doing their job? The presidents of MIT of Penn, and especially of Harvard. Now, I'm speaking as a Harvard alum, and I love my time there from 1974 to 1978. I have nothing but good to say about those years. It was a place of vibrant intellectual diversity. But what I saw yesterday was so deeply troubling and embarrassing as the House committee summoned these three presidents to talk about anti-Semitism on their campus. So I posted on X not long ago, And I will repeat throughout today, President Gay is the president of Harvard, and she ought to be fired today. There are two groups that run Harvard, the Board of Overseers and the Harvard Corporation. They have some overlap. I have never figured it out. They're all Democrats. Uh, But people like David Rubenstein, who may or may not have already retired, are serious people. And they must know that President Gay can't stay there. They should bring back Larry Summers, ask him to do it for three years, and then methodically go through the faculty and the staff and give everyone a check and say, thank you, your services are no longer needed. We're going to change this university back to a college, back to a university, back to what it was in the 70s when you could have Harvey Mansfield and Judith Sklar both teaching, and Alan Keyes and Bill Crystal as teaching fellows. And the dorms were diverse and full of conversation and learning and excitement and adventure and not a left-wing thought factory full of anti-Semitic absolute goons. 
Here is President Gay talking with House member Elise Stefanik yesterday. Cut number three. Dr. Gay, a Harvard student calling for the mass murder of African-Americans is not protected free speech at Harvard, correct? Our commitment to free speech... It's a yes or no question. Is that corrected? Is that okay for students to call for the mass murder of African-Americans at Harvard? Is that protected free speech? Our commitment to free speech... It's a yes or no question. Let me ask you this. You are president of Harvard, so I assume you're familiar with the term intifada, correct? I've heard that term, yes. And you understand that the use of the term intifada in the context of the Israeli-Arab conflict is indeed a call for violent armed resistance against the state of Israel, including violence against civilians and the genocide of Jews. Are you aware of that? That type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. And there have been multiple marches at Harvard with students chanting, quote, there is only one solution, Intifada revolution, and, quote, globalize the Intifada. Is that correct? I've heard that thoughtless, reckless, and hateful language on our campus, yes. So based upon your testimony, you understand that this call for Intifada is to commit genocide against the Jewish people in Israel and globally, correct? I will say again, that type of hateful speech is personally abhorrent to me. Do you believe that type of hateful speech is contrary to Harvard's code of conduct, or is it allowed at Harvard? It is at odds with the values of Harvard. Can you not say here that it is against the code of conduct at Harvard? We embrace a commitment to free expression, even of views that are objectionable, offensive, hateful. It's when that speech crosses into conduct that violates our policies against bullying, harassment. Does that speech not cross that barrier? Does that speech not call for the genocide of Jews and the elimination of Israel? You testify that you understand that is the definition of intifada. Is that speech according to the code of conduct or not? We embrace a commitment to free expression and give a wide berth to free expression, even of views that are objectionable. You and I both know that's not the case. You are aware that Harvard ranked dead last when it came to free speech. Are you not aware of that report? As I observed earlier, I reject that characterization. It's the data shows it's true. And isn't it true that Harvard previously rescinded multiple offers of admissions for applicants and accepted freshmen for sharing offensive memes, uh, racist statements, sometimes as young as 16 years old? Did Harvard not rescind those offers of admission? That long predates my time as president. But you understand that Harvard made that decision to rescind those offers of admission. I have no reason to contradict the facts as you present them. Correct, because it's a fact. You're also aware that a Winthrop House faculty dean was let go over over who he chose to legally represent, correct? That was while you were dean. That is an incorrect characterization of what transpired. What's the characterization? I'm not going to get into details about a personnel matter. Well, let me ask you this. Will admissions offers be rescinded or any disciplinary action be taken against students or applicants who say from the river to the sea or intifada advocating for the murder of Jews? As I've said, that type of hateful, reckless, offensive speech is personally abhorrent to me. Today that no action will be taken. What action will be taken? When speech crosses into conduct 
that violates our policies, including policies against bullying, harassment, or intimidation, we take action, and we have robust disciplinary processes that allow us to hold individuals accountable. What action has been taken against students who are harassing and calling for the genocide of Jews on Harvard's campus? I can assure you we have robust What actions have been taken? I'm not asking. Actions underway. I, I'm asking what actions have been taken against given, those students? Given students' rights to privacy and our obligations under FERPA, I will not say more about any specific cases other than to reiterate that processes are ongoing. Bravo, Elise Stefanik. Like me, a graduate of Harvard, like me, demanding that President Gay be fired if she does not resign. Look, it was a disaster for every one of those presidents. But disasters don't matter unless there are consequences. My friend and colleague Mike Gallagher was similarly disturbed. You wonder why places like Harvard and Penn and MIT are seeing all of these instances of hatred towards Jews and bigotry and anti-Semitism? Well, listen to what happened on Washington D- in Washington, D.C. yesterday, and you'll get your answer. Does M- at MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does have, not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context, when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. So those would not be according to the MIT's code of conduct or rules? That would be um, investigated as harassment, if pervasive and severe. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your testimony that you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the speech becomes becomes conduct— It can be harassment, yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual. Targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. 
Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of anti-Semitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. Of course they should resign in disgrace, because that's a disgrace. You understand what you just heard? Do you realize you just heard the president of Harvard say that if these pro-Palestinian demonstrators actually killed Jews, well, then we would take action. If it becomes genocide, which is what speech turns into conduct means, that's where Harvard and MIT and the University of Pennsylvania draw the line. If there's actual genocide, yep, that's where we object. Calling for the murder of Jews, nope, not so much. It depends on the context? That is truly truly unbelievable but it's where progressives are in 2023 coming up john Kerry. we need to emphatically accelerate the pace of emission reductions that is the only way to keep 1.5 degrees alive when the town hall review returns in a moment As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Abu Dhabi, the capital city of the United Arab Emirates, served as the host of COP28. COP28 is the 28th meeting of the Conference of the Parties to the UN Climate Agreement of 1992. My apologies for the acronym and my shared sorrow that we have such a thing. Among the speakers was our former Secretary of State, John Kerry. We need to emphatically accelerate the pace of emission reductions. That is the only way to keep 1.5 degrees alive. And our choices need to be based on basic mathematics and physics and the evidence that we understand and the best judgment of the best scientists in the world. And how are we going to get there? 
How does John Kerry propose we meet these objectives? Today, about half the greenhouse gases that are warming the planet come from non-CO2 gases and particularly from methane. Methane being 80 to 100 times more destructive than CO2. And he droned on. Main source of methane emissions, I should point out, comes from agriculture. If you've been disturbed at the cost of your grocery bill over a course of the last year, prepare for more of what you cannot afford. Bjorn Lomborg is a contrarian voice on the climate. He's the author of False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. He joined Dan Proft and A.B. Jacobson on AM560, The Answer in Chicago. Global warming is a problem. Uh, but you really got to put it in context. As you mentioned, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, uh, estimated there's 500,000 heat deaths. And she's probably right. What she forgot to tell you is that every year there's about 4.5 million cold deaths. You're not well informed if you only say, oh, my God, there are more heat deaths and forget to say, but because of global warming, there's also fewer cold deaths. You actually need to tell both things. And of course, that goes to the whole Al Gore point. Uh, you're probably not well informed if you only hear the talking points that have been anointed uh, by the climate crowd. And this really does get back to you know John Kerry's point of saying, oh, it's fossil fuels that are causing this. Yes, global warming is caused by fossil fuels emitting CO2. But remember, we don't burn fossil fuels to annoy Al Gore. We burn it because it fundamentally supports everything we like about civilization. And so it's a little bit like making this very naive comparison and saying, you know what? There's an obesity crisis that causes food, so we should eradicate food. <laughs> no, that's not how you do logic. What you need to do is to find a technology that doesn't emit CO2, but still provides you with lots of cheap and useful energy. That's how you fix climate change, but not just by banning fossil fuels. You're actually going to end up making us, us all much, much poorer. Well, is there something out there that can do that? <laughs> not right now, because if there was, if there was something that was cheaper, remember, everybody tells you solar and wind is cheaper, uh, but that's only when the wind is blowing and the sun is shining. Uh, but most people, reasonably, I know, actually want power 24-7, and they're it is mostly, there are a few places, but mostly not competitive. If there was a competitive alternative, we'd all have switched. China would have switched to this new thing. But we should be researching those new technologies. So obviously, switching from coal to gas, because gas emits a lot less CO2, that's a smart idea. We should get everybody fracking, not just the U.S. And we should be investing a lot more in getting, for instance, fourth-generation nuclear power going, it may be one of the solutions. Imagine if you know these new small modular reactors, they're incredibly safe. If they're also incredibly cheap, everyone would buy them. But again, this is a question about making sure that the future becomes so, so cheap for green energy that not just rich, well-meaning Americans will buy a little bit of it to show off, but China, India, and Africa will do so as well. Well, I, I had this conversation with uh, Judith Curry, the former head of atmospheric sciences at Georgia Tech. One of the things that uh, she pointed out, too, and I think we've discussed this, but, you know, there's so much we don't know, too. It turns out um, that uh, understanding the dynamics of what uh, uh, causes temperature increases or temperature decreases is complicated because the uh, climate is a complicated thing to study. And it's sort of been borne out by all of the uh, predictions of uh, the models that uh, – 
that Al Gore relied on two decades ago, three decades ago, that uh, have not proven up. I mean, he was predicting end times uh, well before AOC was doing it. So uh, part of this, though, too, is we have to have some humility about what we don't know in addition to what we think we know and continue the investigation. We, we don't really know, do we? The absolute impact you know, on a percentage basis, on a distributive basis of of, of use of fossil fuels, of, of man, if you will, in terms of climate change, as opposed to the vagaries of, of of the powerful forces that comprise our climate, the chemistry and the physics associated so, with climate. So, Dan, Judith Curry is a great woman, and I love uh, what she's doing. I'm totally going to defer to her because she's a scientist. She's a natural scientist. I'm just a lowly social scientist. So what I try to point out is that even if you get all of this stuff right on the climate models, and I think she's very right in saying there's a lot more uncertainty than we than we normally talk about, but even if we got all of this right, we got to realize that mankind is incredibly adaptable. When sea levels rise, that's going to be a problem, yes, but it's not like it's going to drown hundreds of millions of people because we actually know how to deal with rising sea levels. Holland is a great example of that. And for very little resources over 100 years, we will mostly protect almost everywhere on the planet. We already know this from social science models. So what we got to realize is Currently, the COP28, as you're talking about this, this uh, uh, gap fest on, on climate, is telling us we need to go net zero by 2050. What they're not telling us is that the impacts are probably going to be a lot smaller than what you're normally told because we'll actually adapt. But what they are totally not telling you is the costs are going to be phenomenal. So there are actually two new papers out that shows how much will going net zero by 2050 cost the world? And the short answer is it will cost $27 trillion each and every year this century. That's just a phenomenal amount of money. Remember, the total global GDP today is about $100 billion. Now, we'll be richer throughout the century, so it'll be a little less, but it will be an inordinate amount of money that we're being asked to offer up to fix a much smaller problem. That's just a bad deal. Well, and the, uh, the other part of this, too, which is sort of glossed over, so much of it is, you don't have buy-in from OPEC. You don't have buy-in from Russia. <laughs> you don't have buy-in from China and India, as you mentioned. So if you're talking about saving the planet, then you're ha going to have to include these other actors. Yes, spot on, because fundamentally, the problem here is you can probably convince most of Europe some of America, some of the other rich countries in the world. But remember, if every country in the rich world went net zero today and stayed net zero for the rest of the century, which, of course, would be phenomenally expensive and you know, basically stop modern life as we know it. Even if that happened, we would reduce temperatures by the end of the century by less than one degree Fahrenheit. Yes, it would have some impact, but only a small impact because the majority of the emissions are going to come from China India and Africa. And as you mentioned, also Russia and the other uh, OPEC uh, people and some from Latin America. But the fundamental point is this is only going to work if we get everybody else on board. And we're only going to do that if we have the uh, innovations that Amy and I talked about earlier. You know, if we come up with cheap green energy for the future, everyone will switch. If it's still going to be as expensive, you know, Democrats and, and some European countries are going to try and do it and it'll have no impact, but it will be very costly.
coming up. To me, they're all the same. Like the liberal Jews and the liberal Christians, liberalism is their God and their religion. When the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Stay with us. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. The war in Israel, of course, over these last two months has revealed some fissures on the left, cracks in the Democratic coalition. American Jewry has, to be blunt, felt abandoned by the left and the Democratic Party. The abandonment I'm describing is no small thing. 70 to 80 percent of American Jews have been diehard loyalists for Democrats for more than 50 years. But that community saw on October 7th something that stokes fear in their hearts and memories of the Holocaust. And they see on American streets and on American campuses chants that remind them of the pogroms of the past. Could we be watching the beginning of a political realignment? Yoram Hazoni is the president of the Herzl Institute in Jerusalem and author of Conservatism, a Rediscovery. He was a guest of Charlie Kirk. You know that Jews in America have been mostly liberal for, you know, for a century. I mean, yes, the, 85 percent. There's 15 percent, maybe 20 percent who are conservative nationalist. And then the majority are liberals. And I don't want to say that, you know, that they're not loyal Jews, but their worldview is, is primarily liberal. It's more liberal than it is Jewish. And that means they've supported every crazy liberal thing that's happened in the United States. People have been asking me for decades, you know, can that ever change? And I don't know the answer, but I do know that right now, an awful lot of these uh, liberal Jews are... uh, Reconsidering? They are. They're reconsidering. And you know what? I'll I'll tell you exactly what they should reconsider. Here's my advice. I think, number one, uh, liberal Jews have to change their position on immigration. Um, it, yes. You know, and, and we just saw, I don't know if you, if you saw this, that Ackman wrote a... Uh, Bill Ackman. Bill Ackman, yeah. this f- f- famous, you know, Jew- Jewish liber- liberal... Uh, Hedge bil- fund, but he's b- billionaire. somewhat moderate in, in some ways. Okay. Yeah. He, he's he, not Soros. No, definitely no. So, he's I'm not so, a radical. No, no. Soros is like, you know, it's like revolutionary no, left. No, no, that's not Ackman. No, but I'm, no, I'm yeah. talking about the majority of liberal yes. Jews. He, that, has, you know, he the, has a very mainstream Right. So, th- so that's the question yeah. is that majority of liberal Jews... Is there any chance they'll, they'll be less liberal? And I think that the letter that you just saw him sent to Harvard, th- there were a couple of points there that were, were you know, pretty amazing. I mean, w- one thing he said was that he feels guilty that it's taken him up until this tremendous explosion of anti-Semitism on the left to begin speaking out about things that have been going on for many, many years. So, look, that that's an honest regret saying Good for him. Repentance is a beautiful thing. I've made a mistake. So, look, on the immigration thing, I think we need to look for repentance. But but I think – can I just interrupt really? Yeah, yeah, please. It's just that there's this tension, though, in secular Jewish culture that you must be compassionate to all people, right? It's like tolerance is almost a central – tolerance is taken more seriously than the Torah in secular Jewish households. You know, I really would like to say that it's just liberalism. I I don't know – I've known plenty of liberal Catholics. No, of I've course. known plenty of yeah. liberal Protestants. Fair enough. And I just yeah. have to tell you, to me, they're all the same. Like it's like the liberal Jews and the liberal yes. Christians, 
liberalism is their their god and their religion, and it leads them to all sorts of foolish things. And what we're going through now is horrible, but we should be pushing to to get a change, to get liberals, liberal Jews and liberal others to change on two points. The first we said is immigration. The second is on the public Christian character of this country, which we've talked about before. Yes. I think that people have to, at this point, begin to realize liberalism has created this vacuum in the public space. And that vacuum is being filled by this insane concoction of uh, Islamic suppress- supremacism with with woke neo-Marxism. You'll notice that they're it's the the it's same red this, green axis. Yeah, it's yeah. the same people from the George Floyd riots. This That's is like right. in 2020, we had six months of, of riots and, and burning and, and yes. cultural revolution. And now we're doing it again. So I, I want to just just zero in on this. I do see this. I see this with uh, Jewish billionaires. I see this with rank and file liberal Jews. There is a realignment potentially happening here. Bill Ackman's letter, very, very powerful stuff where there is a lot of remorse and kind of repentance. It's it's an incredible article. There's some stuff that I don't love here about he, diversity, he, but yeah. He, he explicitly says that straight white males have been persecuted. Well, and right? now, when have you ever heard a li- no, like a, a, a prominent liberal Jew talking like so that? Is That's that, new. Why do you think he's now saying that? Because I think he's really re- rethinking his I, I think you're right. I, no, I, I mean, think they, that the scales have fallen they, They've yeah. been, look, th- there's a whole bunch of people not just Jews, but but many prominent liberal Jews among them who've been saying for years, there's a problem with anti-Semitism in the United States and it's on the right, right? There's the, the, There's been this slander against the nationalist camp that, it, yes. you know, that Trump is an anti-Semite and Hawley is an anti-Semite and Tucker Carlson and maybe on and on. You yes. know, you know, this story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and it's it's all nonsense. None of these people are anti-Semites. There are, of course, some actual small number of real anti-Semites on, yeah. the, on the right. And that's worth worrying about. But right now, the overwhelming, I would say, two orders of magnitude, larger threat of anti-Semitism is from the left. Catch the full conversation with Yoram Hazoni on our website, townhallreview.com. Coming up. At what point do we act against the head of the octopus? Getting serious about national security and the mullahs in Iran when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. In our program today, we have dealt with quite a bit of the fallout of the war launched by Hamas against Israel. We have not dealt with the need to address the broader geopolitical dynamic that made October 7th plausible and possible. Len Kordorkovsky is an emigrate from the United States of the Soviet Union, a Jew from what is now Ukraine. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State under Mike Pompeo. He's a frequent guest on my program, and he was just back. He had been in Israel for many weeks. I don't think Americans understand what Israel is thinking at all. The words that are used to describe what happened on October 7th don't do the event justice. The, the palpable pain 
that you see from every Israeli and not just Jewish Israelis, Arab Israelis. You know, one of the things that I wanted to make sure when I went to Israel is talk to uh, all Israelis. And I, I, um, you don't really understand the nature of what happened unless you go to those towns in the south that were attacked by those um, uh, Iranian-sponsored beasts. And I can, I can only call them beasts because... What happened there is indescribable in human terms. You have to go to the homes that were invaded. You have to see, you have to smell the, the char of the buildings of human flesh. Um, uh, you have to hear the stories from people who survived and witnessed what happened. And you have to understand why Israel is intent on doing what it's doing in order to prevent something like this from ever happening again. You know, And I would just say one more thing. This is not just about Israel. For the Jewish people around the world, there's before October 7th and there's after October 7th. Uh, what happened will, uh, will, 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 will has, has had such a profound impact on all of us. This was the most documented atrocity against the Jewish people since the Holocaust, and the world's response to it is uh, so inversely perverse and inexplicable that uh, for all of us in the Jewish community, there, there will never be going back to where, where it was. And for us, never again really does mean never again. If Hamas had had a nuclear weapon, they would have used it. And the reason the pogrom of 10-7 is different from anything we've ever seen before is that the, the methods of modern killing were given to monsters who killed everything with glee. So I think we have to conclude, if Iran can get a dirty bomb made into Hamas, Hamas will use it. If they can get anything to Hamas, Hamas will use it. And we have to act on that, don't we? I think this is a very uncomfortable question for many people, but I think any reasonable observer of Iran and the Middle East has to understand that Hamas would not have embarked on this attack of this scale and of this nature without the permission, at the very least, the blessing of the Ayatollahs in Iran. Uh, Hamas is a proxy of Iran. Hezbollah, which is to the north of uh, Israel, is a proxy of Iran. Houthis, who are firing rockets at Americans uh, and American ships, are a proxy of Iran. If you're in denial uh, that Iran is behind all of this, then I think you're deluding yourself and we're setting ourselves up for something in, you know, inexplicable uh, in terms of uh, the threat to the American people and the people outside of Israel. Yes, you're right, Hugh. If Iran gets its hands on a nuclear weapon, if Iran can sneak a dirty bomb or, or anything of that nature to one of its proxies, then not only the Israelis are in danger, but Americans are in danger, our Arab neighbors are in danger, the world uh, is in danger. and. The question that needs to be uh, asked now, because you know all roads lead to Tehran, is at what point do we act against the head of the octopus? And I know it's uncomfortable for the Biden administration to ask, to ask this question. This administration has um, you know been incoherent in its foreign policy. It has, on one hand, condemned the uh, you know let, let's even go back to Ukraine. You know, it's it's uh, uh, enabled uh, Putin to invade Ukraine and then complained about Putin invading Ukraine. It has uh, enabled Iran to 
fund, train, and arm Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis, and then it complains about him, uh, you know, them using the funds to uh, to threaten our allies. So I, the the whole the whole uh, foreign policy of this administration is inexplicable. Uh, to the Israelis, more and more with every lecture, uh, it's wearing thin now. Look, for political reasons, the Israeli government and Israelis won't tell you this because the United States is uh, and the United States government is playing a big role in, uh, in, in resupplying Israel for what it needs to do, as we should be doing. And uh, America is still Israel's closest friend. So there's only so much that uh, Israeli officials will say publicly. But, hey, I'm not an Israeli official. I'm not part of the Biden administration. So I can tell you that those lectures are ridiculous. They sound ridiculous. They sound offensive to average people. And at, at a certain point, you're going to see the Israeli officials say, well, thank you for coming. Thank you for your opinion. We appreciate your help. But we're going to do what we have to do to save our country. Because for Israel, this is an existential threat. So no lecture about you know being more humanitarian than the Pope is going to prevent Israel from protecting its citizens. The Israelis know the Americans are their friends. We just need to be very sensitive friends at this point in time. And not everything is about us. Right now, Israelis are hurting. We need to offer them comfort. We need to offer our support. We need to back up our words with actions. And we need to shut the hell up and make sure that they have what they need to save their country from Iranian terrorists that are hell-bent on destroying it. There's no talk of a two-state solution. Uh, only one side is talking about two states. You can't have a conversation about two states, for example, where only one side is willing to compromise. So that conversation is, is take, has, has been shelved, and the Israelis' priorities are now, just like in any crisis, we're going to deal with a crisis right, right in front of us. We're going to make sure our people are safe, and then we're going to worry about feelings of our friends somewhere 6,000 miles away. Leonard, you, you just remind me, Len Kordakovsky. Uh, in 1996, I did a series for PBS, and I interviewed the late Rabbi Harold Kushner, uh, author of When Good Things Happen to Bad, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And he said the number one rule, show up and shut up. Friends should show up and shut up. They shouldn't offer advice. They shouldn't compare the situation to their own situation. Show up and shut up and do what you can. It's the perfect advice. Coming up. Owning a Jewish-owned business is an act of courage. Now, that is not America, and that is certainly not the America that my parents and I and my grandparents came to in the early 80s when Reagan talked about the shining city of the, on the hill. A few more minutes with Len Kordakovsky in the final segment of the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Charlie Kirk here. It is critical we keep AM radio in all cars and all trucks. More than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for news, weather, and opinions. AM is also the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping you advised of threatening weather conditions and amber alerts. Text AM to number 52886. Tell Congress that we need AM radio in our cars. Again, text AM to the number 528. Eight six standard message and data rates may apply. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. What we are seeing in our nation is downright disturbing. One chilling example from last weekend came from a mob outside Goldie's, an Israeli-style falafel shop in Philadelphia. 
If you couldn't understand that, it's Goldie, Goldie, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. Let's pick up with a few more minutes of my conversation with Len Kordakovsky. We had a basically non-lethal pogrom in Philadelphia. Hundreds of people turning out in a mob outside of a Jewish delicatessen owned by a Jewish American who I think might have dual citizenship with Israel. You're Jewish American. What do you expect the president to do right now? This, uh, as I mentioned earlier, this does not feel like just an assault on Israel. This feels like an assault on all Jewish people in the United States and around the world. Now, that is how we feel. To deny Jews their right to feel under assault is, I I would say, you know, it doesn't feel American to me. We are always on the front lines of commiserating with other people's pain and when other um, communities are feeling pain, Jews are always front and center and supporting them. It just feels pretty lonely right now uh, when the Jewish people are under assault, when our young men and women on campus are under constant assault, when showing up on the street wearing a sign of being Jewish, whether it's a yarmulke or a Star of David, feels like you're putting your life in danger. And owning a Jewish-owned business is an act of courage. Now, that is not America, and that is certainly not the America that my parents and I and my grandparents came to in the early 80s when Reagan talked about the shining city of the, on the hill. I think a lot of people are going are gonna to leave the Democrats over this because they are failing to stand up for American basic values of toleration and defense of all people. I don't know, Hugh. Uh, I've watched many elections. The Jewish community voted for President Obama, who was the most anti-Jewish president that I can remember. Now, remember, many of the people in the Biden administration are Obama people, and their policies are Obama's policies. So it's hard for me to predict what the Jewish community is going to do here in the United States. I hope we see the Hamas lobby in Congress, or or as uh, I've called them, the Hamas caucus, led by Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar, who are unabashedly anti-Semitic? I hope so. I hope so, because I, I, I see the Democratic Party going in a really wrong direction, and it doesn't just start with this event. It started uh, long before, even long before Obama. And I think the Jewish Democrats uh, have to realize and see it for what it is. The bipartisan consensus that's existed in America uh, in reference to Israel and certainly Jewish Americans is, is not there anymore. Thank you for joining us on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Catch my complete conversation with Len Kordakovsky at townhallreview.com. If you're enjoying our coverage, make it a point to share our podcast with a friend. Send them to our website, townhallreview.com. Send them to listen to my podcast, Highly Concentrated You, at iTunes or wherever podcasts can be found. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Schumann, producer David Pouchon, Alex Perez, Adam Ramsey, and Dwayne Patterson. Let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for joining us.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.